Indiana Jones, Indiana It's a podcast about Indiana Jones. Every movie, one minute at a time. Indiana Jones, minutes. Welcome back to the Indiana Jones Minute. This is the podcast where it's always 11 o'clock somewhere. I'm the Admiral, Pete Mummert. I'm Tom Taylor. I'm Gerald Christopher St. Damasus, patron saint of archaeologists. <laughs> oh. Kind of a no-brainer. Okay. Yeah, really. Porter. Okay. And we're very excited to welcome Jennifer Lavasser, curator of the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum. Uh, welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much, guys. Yay. Yeah, this is exciting. We're glad to have you Yay. here. Yeah, Can I just say, before you. we get started, literally the Air and Space Museum was my absolute favorite place when I was a kid. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> we lived in Potomac, Maryland for a while when I was much younger, and it was yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah, we love it. Obviously, we, um, I think <laughs> most of us who work at the museum feel really privileged, and um, it's, you know, this is one of those weird instances where this is part of my own history. This is, this, you know, enjoyment of Indiana Jones is kind of got a lot of meaning for me so i'm glad i get to capitalize on it a little bit and join you guys and talk a little bit about uh why it means so much to me but also what i do as a curator and uh, how it relates to the movie very cool i yeah i remember as being a kid and it was like if you hadn't been to the air and space museum you were a nobody (laughs) (laughs) if you're from anywhere on the east coast you probably came as an eighth grader and were experiencing that for the last two months you know smelly eighth graders coming through the building (laughs) is there truly any other kind of eighth grader (laughs) they only come smelly now are you are you affiliated with the airport the uh museum in dayton no, not so much. Um, so that's the National Museum of the United States Air Force. And we are probably the two largest aviation related museums in the country. Um, they're a really big partner of ours. We've worked with them on a lot of projects. We work with them on a lot of airplanes, in fact. Okay. So um, we're partners, but they're affiliated more directly with the Air Force. And we are um, what's we're part of the Smithsonian, which is sort of a partially federally funded uh, institution. We work a little differently than all the rest to the government okay but um yeah so we 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 have a really good relationship with them i talk with those folks all the time oh cool that's that's an amazing museum too Mm -hmm. and today we're going to be talking about minute 78 uh 78 begins with henry and indy noticing a couple of nazi fighter planes pursuing them and it ends with henry shooting off his own rear stabilizer and right off the bat jennifer (laughs) Uh, a question I have is, is it possible that either Henry or Indy's hat would still be on their heads after flying for a few minutes in an open cockpit like this? I think that's pretty unlikely. They're probably going, uh, you know, on over a hundred miles an hour, I would think at least somewhere in that neighborhood. So if you stick your head out of your car going that fast, your hat is on your head. (laughs) Those are magic hats they are wearing for sure. Yeah. Action hero hats. Yeah. Different laws. <laughs> Magic something. Yeah, Tom, you pointed this out I think last minute or two minutes ago. Like I had never it for some reason it had never registered to me. But now that's all I can see is that there's absolutely no wind like in any of these things. <laughs> no, wait a minute, I pointed that out. And Tom, when you said it, it just blew me away. So Yeah, I was really brilliant to point that out. Sometimes I'm just really spot on. 
<laughs> well, I, I noticed, you know, at the beginning of this minute, we have another thumbs up. Like, well, we made it. Yeah. You know, followed by immediate danger on the horizon. And yeah. uh, this is a bit of a theme, right? Well, this one I can understand a little more. Like when he's all relaxed, just sitting on the Zeppelin while they're still in Berlin. I'm like, oh, well, yeah, settle down. You're, you're still, you know, as we're about to see, Nazis could just walk on and, and harass you at any second. But like escaping from a Zeppelin in a plane, that must feel kind of kind of kick-ass and kind of, hey, we made it. Like, oh, mm-hmm. a couple of planes. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah. I know, I know Pete, had, Pete had asked me about this in particular, but, um, you know, sort of the reality check on this part of the minute is the fact that, well, leading up to this minute is the fact that Germans actually never use Zeppelins this way. This is a totally American idea. Um, that happened during the war. So the war, uh, the U.S. was manufacturing zeppelins that could harbor aircraft. They actually called them flying aircraft carriers. Um, but the Germans never did that. So hmm. this is out of this, straight out of George Lucas's American imagination. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely fits, though. Like I, I, I would imagine that he's thinking back to those exact airships when he's thinking about this. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And, you know, this. I mean, I think this fits a lot of the sort of classic mythology or uh, our beliefs about the war. And, and this is actually pre-war, but, um, you know, sort of the, the Nazis ferrying around in these Zeppelins. It's very high class, high society kind of experience. But, you yeah. know, there's always an escape route for Indy. So there has to be that airplane. <laughs> and it's great that there will actually, this has some basis in history, at least. It's not a totally unreal thing to think that this could have been done by the Germans. Um, although the U.S. airships that did it were a little bit different design and um, actually used helium. So oh, I can't huh. imagine that would have been uh, an easy thing to uh, to do. So wow. I always did things the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> now were those just, were those like this? Did, were those, did those have a rigid frame? The American ones. Yeah, so they're they're a similar design. They're um, you know, sort of the, the thing that I always was confused by as a kid is when I would look at a Zeppelin, I always assumed it was like the Goodyear blimp. That you know, those things are sort of exactly the same, and they're really very different. Blimps are very sort of soft basically um uh-huh. so that rigid frame gives it a lot of stability their design is is different on the inside in the u.s and german versions um but the u.s i think we're looking it was um more of a naval uh invention that mostly were done you know under contract to the navy so they were looking to be able to essentially replicate what they were doing at sea in the air hmm. is, wow. you know is there a benefit to having a i guess a superstructure or whatever uh, well, at the for, time for there was. The is it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could do a lot from it. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting idea. I think, you know, we've kind of, I think the Hindenburg and a lot of those things really proved the idea to not really be all that sustainable. Or, you know, the Hindenburg was uh, one of the last Zeppelins built, and that was... Um, just, I think it's around the same time that the air, U.S. airships were being built, um, towards the, sorry, you know, in the thirties. And, um, they, like I said, they were filling theirs with, well, they were filling, the Germans were filling theirs with hydrogen, which is one of the reasons that the Hindenburg blew up is because it was very flammable. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately the U.S. ones didn't work all that well either. I mean, they're, they're very light. They're not, um, easily maneuverable in the sense of, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to get away from something. And the two U.S. ones that were really high profile, both were lost because of storm damage. So, oh boy, um, yeah, yeah, you can fly too I've, close to a storm, and that's what's going to happen. Huh? You know, I've I've always wanted to ask this: if if you took a pin to a blimp, 
I certainly hope not, but I wouldn't want to get near any needles. <laughs> well, does everyone working aboard a blimp talk in a really high voice? <laughs> I, well, I was looking at a drawing or a schematic, and all of those, all of the uh, helium was actually contained in, lo- like, sort of how you'd think about uh, a submarine having, you know, tanks, air tanks, basically, oh, to okay. be able to, you know, vary where you. That's how you vary your depth. It's the same idea as that the, you know, there's it's a there tanks basically filled with inside that structure. So all that stuff is isolated. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. <laughs> you can't siphon it <laughs> in, the, in the cockpit there, Peter. I'm sorry, to, yeah, so sorry to burst your bubble. Pardon the pun there, Peter. But It uh, is, though. I, I would be very surprised if there weren't at some point a popular mechanics magazine cover from the 20s or 30s that didn't have like a Zeppelin with air, airplanes flying out of it. Oh, sure. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. uh, makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, I have a question for you, Tommy, here. You're, you're my weather vane in times of indolibrium crisis. All God right. knows I, I can't rely on Pete here. <laughs> Everyone knows I hate sunshine fun. all the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you think of the closing in shot where the Nazi pilot's head flies right into the camera lens? It's, uh, <laughs> we can all agree it doesn't work, like, technically well. Like, it's it, it looks like a special effects shot. I kind of, I guess I it's this whole sequence is weird because I admire that they're trying stuff like that. I just wish they could pull it off better. But then at the same time there's all these I think Scott said this uh last minute that uh this there's a lot of like kind of like yeah sort of not greatly done special effects shots of the planes and stuff in the sequence, but they're mixed with these beautiful actual yeah just put a guy in a plane in a costume and film him flying an airplane, <laughs> you know. <laughs> All these beautiful shots like that. So it's uh, it's 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 a mixed bag. But yeah, that one shot is always okay. even from the very beginning. I was like, yeah, it looks like a lot of it looks like a special effects shot. And, well, it uh, looks like a, it's a little force. It reminds me a lot of the tank sequence, you know, coming up towards right. the end, where oh, the, sure. you know it's really dramatic and it's exciting. And I think anybody who's into machines, I grew up in Michigan. I love cars. Any kind of machine is kind of really cool. So that sequence is exciting until you get right towards the end. And you know, anybody who grew up watching this movie may have had a book that showed the models that they used. And I thought, mm-hmm. God, that's really sad and sort of like. You know, the seeing the body of the guy get crushed underneath, you're like, that's so fake. You know, even a ten year old can figure out how fake that is. And so right. the CG is really disappointing in this part. Or not CG, but the the uh, matting and everything yeah. is just really yeah. disappointing. Yeah. I just, you know, what's interesting is, uh, I like the shot and mm-hmm. I like the idea of the shot, but it, it, it's not it's not something that I think you would find in an Indiana Jones movie, really. It seems a little bit like from another movie, which is fine, which is fine. I'm not hating on it. <laughs> I, it does I, feel a little everybody. bit like uh, industrial light and magic, like, you know, yeah. kind of flexing their muscles a little bit, trying new stuff. Yeah. So I like it for that reason. You know, I, I don't want them to yeah. not try stuff like this just because it doesn't yeah, turn yeah, out yeah. perfectly. You know? Okay, oh, see, I okay, Peter. What do you <laughs> <laughs> well, I agree that the, the special effects on the shot aren't really up yeah. to it, but I think this is one of the most classic Spielberg shots we've ever gotten with the airplane flying right up and you see his one eye squinted so he can look through the bomb, through the <laughs> gun sight. I think that's I'm, absolutely you know, I was classic. trying to think of it. Is there a shot like that or something reminiscent of that in, in other indie films? There is in Crystal Skull, one? if I'm not mistaken. And there's one later uh, in this movie too. Yeah. 
Okay. And it's just such a cl- like it's I'm, just I'm, such a, It's not bad. It's just a it's a different technique, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's great. Well, not, okay. It kind of humanizes not to poo-poo, the game. You know, kind of you know, stomp all over this minute even more. But um, <laughs> I'm in the story, <laughs> and I was telling I was telling my friends last week when I was prepping for this. They said one of the things that always has always driven you know I've always really enjoyed movies about history, and in some ways this movie always kind of said history to me. Um, you know, it's of that era that I was interested in, especially sort of the mid-century and I, I'd always get so excited at these movies like Braveheart I thought wow that's a great movie and then when you read behind the scenes you're like oh those guys weren't even alive at the same time it's really bummer and, yeah. and now reading into this it's sort of been this, it's sort of been the same process in this movie which is you know, I started reading up on the airplanes and I thought, okay, that's a kind of a cool looking aircraft. Oh, wait, that plane wasn't designed until 1945. <laughs> oh, uh, wow. That plane <laughs> isn't German. It's actually Belgian, you know, um, wow. or Swiss in the case of the ones that look German in this in this part of the mm. um, movie. Those are yeah, Swiss, Swiss uh, fighters that were not even flown until the you know after 1945 and the same wow. with the, the the biplane that that they're flying in it uh it's a sort of belgian design that was later produced <clears throat> in france and so it's kind of you know you go like oh well you know maybe it's not a big deal but to people <laughs> yeah. like me who you know yeah. really thrive <laughs> on and, and and i get back to the whole truth versus fact part of the story here um you know these are the facts of like how they did the movie and it kind of you know, I don't know, makes it less enjoyable. I know to my colleagues at the museum who are real airplane fanatics that I, I'm sure they were sitting in the first time they saw this, just analyzing it up, up and down, left and right, and uh-huh. just kind of shaking their heads at it, as we do with a lot of things. I mean, we always get asked questions in my department about the Martian or other space movies and how realistic they are, and we get to comment on them. So, um, you know, I, same I, kind I of thing. I remember watching Braveheart and, and, you know, of course you go over and you're like, I got to read all about this. And it was the same thing. You're like, historically, this is fascinating. I never knew William Walt Cantart. <laughs> it's just like, and, and so you wonder how, you know, but if it does get you to, you know, look up the actual history of it, then is it providing a service or a common good? Or is it just, uh, you know, um, disseminating, you know, uh, you know, myth and and bad stories and non-true. Yeah. You know, well, for history. some people it is. Yeah. If you if you, if you can yeah. if you can be confident that your audience isn't going to go to your movie and assume that they know now about whatever your movie's about, <laughs> they've seen a history lesson. Yeah, that they're actually going to go. You know, read some of the actual. Like I, Amadeus is a perfect example. You're like, oh yeah, Mozart and Sally. Wait, they were buddies. They were pals. Salieri didn't like drive him <laughs> insane and kill him and <laughs> make him write his death mass and everything. All right. Yeah, we, we're always looking for those kinds of inaccuracies. I mean, I, I look, you know, there was uh, the Patriot, I think, and I don't know why it's always Mel Gibson that seems to get himself involved in the like, <laughs> he's that kind he's of really guy. blurring the lines between fantasy and reality, and it's yeah. it's um. It's disappointing uh, somebody like me who, you know, really thought the Patriot was like, oh, this is really great and enjoyable. And then I look, oh, wait, now everybody's there's all this backlash. And, <laughs> you know, there are some there's some historians that go in for the minutia. You know, one of my, one of the favorite ones in my department is and this is how, you know, minute we get the details get in my department. But in uh, the movie Apollo 13, there's a line that's spoken by Jim Lovell, and it's just slightly different than what he actually said. And so everybody Uh-oh. gets on, you know, gets yeah. on that whole thing. I'm like, you know, 
it's it's an interpretation and obviously this is not pretending to be a historical movie but sure. got lots of yeah. really really big important moments um that you've kind of just passed in the last few minutes um you know meeting hitler i have to say is yeah, that's a big, that would be a big historical thing to do. Right. <laughs> yeah, we, he was famous at the time. Yeah, <laughs> apparently. On the plus side, if you if you want to come back and join us next season, I don't think there are any problems at all scientifically or historically with, you know, some of the modes of transportation like the refrigerator. Nope. <laughs> Rock solid. Nope. Oh, you know, it's well, funny because I thought about that, too, is just the idea of the sort of nuclear fallout that's yet to come for Indy. And um, <laughs> I think that was closer to the time I was kind of moving in towards an actual career as a historian. And, um, you know, it's just everybody just kind of shakes their head and walks, you know, keeps walking because it's, it's, <laughs> it's yeah, <laughs> incredibly <laughs> unlikely scenarios that we just kind of have to you know, say, OK, well, just, you know. To provide a little ballast here, right? I have a positive comment. Whoa! Hey! <laughs> well, hey! Whoa! Not even everything out. Actually, second thirty-five of this minute has one of the coolest, sexiest moments in this entire movie, and it's when Indy reaches out of the cockpit and he's firing his pistol at the planes. And I just, I love that. That's so Indiana Jones. It's it's a long shot. It's completely chaotic. And, and I think it's fantastic. You, you like, you, you hear the machine gun, and then you hear that Ben Burt, like, kapow, kapow, yeah. kapow. and you're like, oh, my God, is he firing his revolver? <laughs> you know what's incredible about planes? that? Until you just pointed that out, I never saw that before. I never saw that either. I was like, wait, That's he's amazing. just pointing yeah. Never noticed it. I never yeah. saw that. Wow. Because you're looking at Henry with his machine gun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you're gun. like, Indy, I didn't notice it either, except I heard it. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> and then I watched, wow. and he's like, he's he's like looking down at his, you know, there's like a five o'clock and a one o'clock, and he's firing at the planes, which of course you're like, that's ridiculous. What do you, how would you even, you know, the ballistics behind that? I mean, what are you going to lead <laughs> yeah. him? I mean, but it's just don't waste your time, Martin. Yeah. <laughs> and he might and he might <laughs> don't waste your time, Martin. <laughs> and he might he might regret that. I don't know. Maybe later in future. Yeah, there goes minutes. my all my notes for minute eighty one, <laughs> what happened in these bullets. But But that that's I, that's it's so Indiana Jones and yeah. it's so hot. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, that brings up a question I, I had for you, Jennifer. How difficult is it to shoot a moving airplane with a machine gun or a pistol? Great question. Um, I would imagine, at least in, you know, sort of this era and the open cockpit design, you know, anybody could have, you know, whipped out their their pistol and shot at something. I don't know that it's really advisable or really useful. Um, <laughs> everything would be really pretty far away and probably moving fairly fast as well. Uh-huh. Um, but I don't know the, yeah, the ballistics of it all is a little uh, beyond me, but uh, the machine gun. Yeah. That's an abs. That's absolutely part of, um, you know, how these things were operated. They usually, uh, from what I understand of how some of these even, you know, sort of world war one era air airplanes were designed is that they were designed specifically to not be able to go through the tail section. Um, so you wouldn't be mm. able to basically shoot yourself down. Uh-huh. This is the prototype be before certain... they figured that out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what's funny is that this one and the German, oh, this is the sort of little factoid I learned about both of these aircraft in the scene are they're both trainers. And so the likelihood that either would have had any act you know like ability to shoot anything in reality is 
pretty much non-existent. In fact, the German plane he's shooting at doesn't have any, the plane itself, that variety doesn't have any armaments on it at all. So mm. all uh, invented mm. post, post-production uh-huh. um, additions in the movie, but... You know, it's um, it's meant to look like German aircraft. It's you know, the German aircraft could be scary. It's not the only movie this has been done with this exact plane, even. So. Oh wow. Um, they're just yeah, you know, kind of playing on it. Um, I, you know, it's funny you mentioned the the really beautiful photography that comes after this, and I notice that every single time I see the scene is that when you go to the rear view of the biplane and you kind of see them flying through. You know, in my head, I think that's definitely Harrison Ford flying that plane. <laughs> oh, yeah, but he's yeah. not crashing on a golf course in this case, so right. that's always positive. Yeah. <laughs> really well, I've got, I don't know if you guys remember from Temple of Doom, but this shot, this whole scene is actually stolen from Temple of Doom. Um, oh, this was mean? when they're on oh, Laoshe's airplane. Originally, the script had Shorty, they had a machine gun. Uh, inside oh, right. Lao Shea's airplane and Shorty's shooting at Lao Shea's son who's flying after them in a fighter plane and he blows up, he shoots off part of their plane and that's why they crash. <laughs> and that's when they go huh. and, and that scene was stolen from Raiders <clears throat> when he was going to fall out of a plane and slide down to meet the shaman. So All right. they just keep kind of stealing oh, forward. Oh my gosh. Wow. Weird. Huh. Yeah. Okay, you know, Pete, where was this filmed? Because half of this dogfight takes place over the black forest and like the other half of it takes place over pasadena <laughs> it does i think it's all i can't I think it's all filmed like in Spain. I, is that me am i just miss reading that or something no i think uh it i mean was it all filmed in the same place that i'm not positive but i do know it was all filmed in spain or i believe it was all filmed in spain so I, okay yeah I'll just get like par- half the time it's sort of alpine green right, w- right wilderness, and then the other half of the time it looks like San Bernardino. It does. It looks like Southern <laughs> California. Yeah. Yeah, very much. Yeah. It's like the opening to Mash. <laughs> it does. It does, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> I have a positive. Oh. <laughs> oh, Tommy, down in front. <laughs> yeah. Yes, me. <laughs> For extra credit. Um, I love. I absolutely love Henry is following the thing and he, and he shoots the tail off the plane and he keeps sh- he keeps shooting <laughs> after he obviously blows the tail of the plane off he shoots like like a specific number of, of rounds like five rounds or something like but but like oh i didn't oh i shouldn't uh oh i love that well it i think it it speaks a little bit to you know everything that we you guys talked about way back in the kind of first minutes of uh you know the first act of the movie when indy walks in the young indy walks in and his dad is just really kind of oblivious to everything he's doing Mm -hmm. dad's still oblivious here you know dad doesn't know what 12 11 and 10 o'clock are yeah uh, (laughs) in terms of flying um you know he's got kind of a lack of awareness of the world around him which is you know for something like sean connery is kind of disturbing because you think that's a man of the world right there right (laughs) he's he's playing the kind of bumbling fool at this point the kind of you know he's kind of the comedic relief if marcus isn't around so you gotta have somebody to be funny yeah (laughs) yeah well that's a good point though you can have like a uh not to beat poor marcus just dead into the dirt but you can have a you can have a comical foil Without him being a complete goof. Although, yeah. I don't know. Maybe if Marcus was looking at his watch, we'd be furious at him. I don't know. 
<laughs> yeah, if Marcus <laughs> shot off the rear stabilizer, Jerry would be apoplectic right now. No, I actually, through. you know, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you know what? I like the what happens at 11 o'clock, I actually think is a lazy line. It just, really? I, I love how Indy actually demarcates the clock, though. You're like, yeah. you know, he's like 12 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock. That's awesome. But mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think we needed that first line. But I do think it's hilarious when. <laughs> Henry shoots off the tail fin. I do. I think that's actually hilarious. Well, what would happen, Jennifer, if you shot that off in a plane like this? Is that going to affect your ability, your airworthiness, or can you still land the plane pretty easily and fly? Yeah, um, you're going to have a lot of trouble. Um, you know, your tail is sort of, um, you know, one of the main ways you're directing yourself. Um, especially on one, an aircraft like this, these fabric aircraft, these fabric and probably in this case, either wood or aluminum, more likely wood even at this point. Um, cause these are just more like, these are, these are trainer aircraft. They're not going to build them terribly substantially, but, um, it's gonna, it's gonna cause a real problem. It's probably more of a problem than the Germans shooting at you at that point. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, yeah, structurally, I, that's going to be a, that's a pretty significant part of an aircraft like that. So it's going to be okay. real challenging. Well, okay. it looks like I don't know if the plane can heal itself <laughs> or what, but it's at second fifty two. <laughs> we uh, actually the the chopping up the tail scene after that. We you know we we see it like a. <laughs> a shot of the perfectly intact, yeah. unmolested plane. Well, they painted some bullet holes in it or something. <laughs> like yeah. some bullet hole I mean, the tail is fine. Yeah, but it's, it's fine. Of, I mean, they literally like painted it black or something, or you know, made it look like somebody scorched. I, it or I was just—I don't know why they put that shot directly after. Yeah, they it does. It, you do the, see, yeah, it's, it's back. Yeah. It's crystal clear. Yeah. yeah, and they do that a few times, and I'm like, they could have put this shot before he does that, and it would have been great. Yeah, but you have to have a shot of the plane trying to land, but you can't have the tail. You know, that, I mean, I don't want to take away the nice actual live shot of the plane yeah you know? that's true I'll, yeah. I'll take a i'll take a fudge sort of damaged yeah. tail over another blue screen shot yeah <laughs> that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> you know what's amazing i think i said this in temple of doom too around because we had the same kind of issues here or there you know like when the you know the plane was crashing there and everything and they're in the raft and everything the, these effects have not gotten much better in like the you know, 2018 or whatever this this is. Mm-hmm. Like the, the having actors against any kind of screen, whether it's a green screen or a blue screen or just rear projection, it always looks a little funky and it hasn't gotten that much better. You can still see it going on when you go to the movies today in the vastness <laughs> of the future of 2018. <laughs> Frustrating. <laughs> and kind of amazing too. And kind of charming. Maybe yeah, I like it. Maybe I, I like, like it. It's a I goofy. like Yeah, I like I like this actually. Kind like, oh, this is what movies hokey. look like. Yeah. You got actors here, and then something <laughs> thousands of miles away is happening somewhere else. It just makes me think back to the <laughs> old movies from the 40s where, you know, people are happily driving their car along and moving their steering wheel wildly. <laughs> right. And then the, oh, bad, the rear projection yeah. in the back. <laughs> yeah. And they hit a guy on a bike, and they didn't even start chasing them. But, yeah. but I, Jennifer, I've got another question for you. There's a sure. movie I often think about, probably more than I should. Uh, it came out in 1980, and it was called Final Countdown. And it had Kirk Douglas and Martin Sheen. Oh, yeah. And they're on an aircraft carrier that gets transported back in time to Pearl Harbor, like just before Pearl Harbor. Oh, my gosh. I think I know this movie. Yeah. It, it's yeah. A kind of a crazy movie. But there's yeah. a scene where the, a modern fighter jet, like an F-16 or something, is tailing a Japanese Zero 
but because the zero is so much slower than the jet they're they're actually it seems like they're almost at a disadvantage and I was, oh I'm, absolutely and i'm wondering is <laughs> would that be the case here like if these messerschmitts well i guess they're supposed to be messerschmitts are they are a yeah. lot faster than this uh biplane that they're in would that actually put them at a you know not ability not at an ability to use their weapons properly no, no. Um, I mean, they would be able to vary their speed to some degree so that they could, um, I mean, clearly they're circling this this biplane pretty readily, pretty easily, and that's very accurate. The speed of those um, fighters is going to be, you know, faster. Um, they're built to fly that way. They're built to be, you know, sort of aerodynamic and maneuverable, and so that's what, you know, makes them fighter planes um, uh -huh. of the sort of 1945 era. Um so, but it, it, you know, just it, tactically, it puts that aircraft at a much bigger advantage. I would imagine it would be, you know, not knowing the specifics, um, you know, the idea of that other movie and sort of a modern jet facing off against a propeller aircraft. I mean, you're talking about, you know, sort of um, takeoff speeds of that, you know, those jets are, you know, about the maximum speed of some other propeller aircraft. So, yeah, I don't know how that would play out. It seems like it would be really difficult um, unless you were really far away to be uh -huh. able to do something like targeting a propeller aircraft from a jet, a, a high-performance modern jet. So, uh -huh. yeah, it could be really, it could be challenging in a different way, I would imagine. Uh, now I have the final countdown stuck in my head. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Actually, I, I have another question or, or, or two for you, Jennifer. Sure. Um, if if you procured the Holy Grail for the Smithsonian, <laughs> how do you think it would be safely housed and yet still promoted oh. at the museum? Like, would would that be like a black tie gala event? Yo, for sure. Like, would you invite a Donovan? All the Donovans of New York City, or you? you yeah, you better believe it. Although, you know, he might be a little too wrinkly for me. Um, <laughs> scare some people in his current state. Um, yeah, I mean, when we get significant artifacts, and you know, the Museum of Natural History, or excuse me, the uh, Smithsonian's Museum of American History actually houses. Uh, Indy's hat and jacket, um, which I believe they got back for the filming of Crystal Skull. They used the huh. originals. Oh, wow. Um, I think I read that somewhere. Um, I heard but, they slipped in Fonzie's you know, jacket a... just as a goof. <laughs> they, yeah, they do. <laughs> um, but, you know, these are really significant. I think, you know, those are some of my favorite, personally, my favorite pieces are more popular culture and film history kinds of things, um, which at my museum, you know, includes things like the studio model for the Starship Enterprise from the original TV show and things like that. Those are really very special. And we're, as historians, taking, um, taking those kinds of items into different accounts. So if we were to have the... Um, the sort of real Holy Grail, if you will, the one if yes. it were dug up somewhere in the Middle East, that would be monumental. It would be, you know, it would be everywhere. That kind of news would be huge, sort of like the Dead Sea Scrolls or mm -hmm. anything sure. like that. And every time I see one of these movies, one of the Indiana Jones movies, I think about sort of what people have always said to me, which is, you know, what is it like in the storage areas? Because that, you know, <laughs> really quintessential <laughs> end of Raiders is what everybody thinks it's like and to some degree it is I don't want to you know spoil it all for everybody but we have storage areas that don't look a lot different than that they're much smaller buildings but yeah. there are crates and crates and crates <laughs> of things oh, and wow. 
I think it speaks a lot to our interest in collecting. We're, we are a culture of collectors. We like to save things. I was going through some of my saved things tonight looking for something, and I realized, gosh, I just have a lot of stuff. And as a museum person, as a curator, that's really hard to deal with. And, <laughs> I, you know, I thought about, it. do I have a holy grail as a curator? And I think I've already actually touched my holy grail for my collection. It was oh. a, a camera taken into space um, back in the 1960s, and... Um, wow. It was sort of wow. the first of its kind, and I, I got to see it. It was went to an auction, which, you know, it, it, I think when Pete and I started talking about this, it's, you know, there's the classic line, you know, um, there there's, there's classic lines from this series about um, kind of, you know, collecting and, and, and getting that, that item, that sort of holy grail. Um, but they belong in a museum. And every time I've seen one of these pieces, I, that's the very first thing that comes to mind. If I see an auction where there's something that I wish I had in the collection of the Smithsonian, that's the first thing that I think it belongs in a museum. So, uh -huh. well, um, and when with, I, without, it, it's uh... like, it kind of like wrenches your heart and you go, Oh, you know? And so I feel yeah. the same kind of thing that Marcus and Indy feel about this stuff. It's, it's, you know, I, I've been listening a lot to your early stuff on the cross of Coronado and I go, man, that just, that is like, I can see how he <laughs> was so obsessed with that and why he'd go to that length, partly because you get this passion for history from somewhere and you just don't want to let it go. And so it becomes a bit of a crusade, so to speak. Well, you know, in keeping with that idea, and, and of course you don't have to get into specifics, but is there anything at the Smithsonian uh, that would be too valuable or priceless to actually be displayed? Hmm. Good the, question. Uh, the test ship um, from the beginning at the opening credits of the $6 million man? That's there. <laughs> <laughs> that's openly on display. You know, we have that, we have that exact uh, vehicle that's featured in the opening credits. We I know have you not do. that, obviously. <laughs> yeah, it's still Tommy, hanging that's, in what, the that's why I kept going there as a kid. I would just go in there and I'd stand there just a gog. I'd just be like, oh my God, yeah. there it is. But it's funny, I don't think we actually zero. tell anybody that. <laughs> um are there things too valuable? I, you know, I don't know. I don't know that there are. I think one of the things that's difficult um, as a museum professional, it doesn't matter if you're at a small museum or a large museum, is trying to think about the best way to handle certain kinds of artifacts. So we have in, in our museum, we have items that we see as priceless, like they are irreplaceable. And most of the big things that you're talking about, the sort of holy grail type things, those are our replaceable items. One of our um, most obvious ones is Neil Armstrong's spacesuit. Mm. Um, that is replaceable that is a an incredibly monumental moment in all of human history and if something happened to that suit it'd be horrible and we're in the process right now of doing a massive conservation project that will get it on display for the 50th anniversary next year so mm. is it too valuable to put on display absolutely not we just have to find the right way to display it so that's sure. the real key for museum curators and sort of um, conservators is to find what are the ideal conditions for this thing um, and lots right. of this stuff was not meant to ever be in a museum. It's all just stuff that somebody made and for a purpose usually. Um, yeah. So hmm. we have to figure out really creative ways to keep things alive, so to speak. Um, you've got to keep them, you know, keep them going. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be, they don't want to be here anymore. They're, those spacesuits, they are, they're not in good shape. Those materials do not like air. Huh. Huh. <laughs> it just does huh. not work well for them. So we have to find the right ways to, fix, to, to display them in the museum. It's a, it's a tricky process. Have, have you ever gotten lost in your own museum? 
<laughs> oh. oh, the ultimate question. Um, Ouch. I have. I will hesitantly, I will say no, but there are lots of places. (laughs) Um, There are lots of places that I have. Now, I've been lost in the loading dock. I don't think that counts, though. Um, No, that doesn't count. And and I'm sure you've uh, never been lost in your own museum. No, I haven't really. Though I've been there for 16 years. So I've worked there since 2002. Um, There were a lot of uh, exhibits in the museum I never went into. I just wasn't interested in the subject matter so I kind of just avoided them um not intentionally really it just never happened so I I didn't I didn't get lost I just sort of didn't try either <laughs> see she didn't get lost but i will i will guarantee you there are our building is now i will say this our building was built in 1976 opened in 1976 it's pretty straightforward it's a basically a box and so it's really hard to get lost (laughs) if you're talking about museums that were built in the time of what these guys are talking about absolutely go across the street to my friends at the natural history museum that place is scary (laughs) um that's easy so i'm not gonna put it past them that that's a real possibility that he got lost. Um, I've been in that building and I've not wanted, I've not wanted to like lose the leader of the group kind of thing because I didn't know how I was going to get out. Well, uh, speaking of the leader uh-huh. <laughs> and trying to get out, uh, this just coming in uh, over the wires uh, from Professor Christy Porter. This just in. Uh who else expected Snoopy? <laughs> <laughs> Shaking his fist. Well, yeah, yeah wearing yeah. a scarf. Wearing a scarf, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a job. It has, it has a little bit of that vibe, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I wanted, to, I did want to give you guys a few, if you, if, I, if you don't mind me going backwards a little bit. I no, have not at a, all. Sort of a little interesting factoid for you. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that when I brought this up to the attention of some of my friends that they weren't sure about and had to give a little thought to was um, the maps. So in the, you know, sort of early on in each of the, fir- the first and the third movie, Raiders in this movie, there is travel by airplane that then, and that actually happens in, in, uh, in Temple of Doom as well. It's this, uh, you know, map travel, the line follows a certain path from point to point. And uh, I asked my colleagues, I said, now in this movie, and I actually watched it a couple of times over to say what was the route. So when he gets on the plane to fly to Venice, he goes from New York City to St. John's, Newfoundland, to the Azores, to Lisbon, to Venice. Um, He's supposedly in a DC-3, but in 1938... There were no, um, there was no infrastructure built for a DC-3 in any of those places to be able to land. Oh. So oh, wow. it's actually hmm. more accurate to go back to Raiders and watch how he takes a flying boat. Huh. Um, those oh. were the only aircraft that were flying in and out of places like St. John's and the Azores at that point because there were no, um, there was no infrastructure basically at the, at the, in 1938 to be able to support that. It's not until the war comes around where they have to build landing strips for larger aircraft that you really see this, you know, sort of when you see a lot of more international travel happening on airplanes for one reason or another. So. So, wow. yes, a DC-3 could fly that route, but not in 1938. Sorry, Indy. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, well, any other thoughts on the movie or on, on uh, this minute in particular? 
No, no. I, you know, this is coming up on some of my, my favorite sequence coming up. Um, I had told Pete that um, one of the reasons this has always been probably my favorite movie is not only did I see it with my dad, I really remember going to see the movie. Um, back in 2008, I got to travel to Petra and see um, the location they'll be at towards the end of the movie, which is just if you are ever have any reason to fly to the Middle East, you cannot miss that location. It is. Wow. Completely amazing and stunning. They've done a bunch of excavations since 1989. So whenever you go on a tour there, they will actually tell you we fi- there was a movie filmed here. And afterwards, all these other things were uncovered, um, partly because of the movie itself. So it's, uh, wow. it's a stunning location not to be missed if you're in that part of the world. Yeah, definitely. One of these days. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Well, this was a lot of fun talking to you today. Um, do you have any place you no would problem. like to send people especially or anything you would like to have people walk away from this with? Uh, well, um, if you're ever going to touch an artifact, please put gloves on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I saw, I was just watching, I, yeah, I rewatched the whole movie and, um, you know, there's, there's this reverence that is paid to the cross of Coronado by Marcus. I mean, he's like adoring it. He's, he's just sort of longing for it. He just, you know, he, it's just so weird, but he's holding it with his bare hands. (laughs) And if I've learned anything as a museum professional, it is you don't touch you don't touch things like that with yeah. bare hands. You'll get your oil, the oil from your hands will get all over it and it will be impossible to clean. And then your conservator will be really annoyed with you. So, um, so tip to tip from the pros. Don't, um, yeah, don't touch artifacts if you don't want to mess them up forever. Rubbing, rubbing champagne on them is okay. Uh, is cool? Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Pouring. Yeah. Although I will say I kissed the Stanley cup recently. So, um, my, my, my grubby, prints are all over that thing <laughs> like thousands of other people <laughs> well and we have a no touch policy for most of this podcast with jerry so i think that's yeah <laughs> we spray everything down after each episode <laughs> but yeah thank you for joining us jennifer and uh if, if everybody else if you would like to join us again tomorrow we've got another aviation expert coming up Um, And you can fly right back here tomorrow for minute 79 of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade here on the Indiana Jones Minute. Smithsonian, the final countdown. (laughs) 